Welcome to the Cine Meh Podcast, a place to discuss and deconstruct perfectly average movies. Not good movies, not bad movies, just fine movies. So fine, in fact, you probably forgot they even exist. We're your hosts. I'm Ryan. I'm Joshua. And while we may not be nearly as forgettable as these films, we probably run a close second. That's right. Adequate films for adequate folk. Josh, what do you got for me today? Sahara. Uh, that I use it interchangeably. Um, okay, I think it, it depends it, on how posh I want to sound. <laughs> Sahara, Sahara. In the Sahara Desert. The, the, um, I was in the Sahara Desert. It's a lovely desert, by the way. Crusty exterior, but yes, and the, so. <laughs> the the natives' camels were very spitty. <laughs> The camels. The camels of the Sahara Desert. No. Do you have any camels that I could smoke? <laughs> we are talking about uh, the movie Sahara, which Sahara. we have to specify because there are several movies called Sahara. I So when I went to rent this thing on uh, ye olde Amazon, um, I was not aware that there were so many different Saharas. And I was like, <laughs> I... There's like a 1962, I think there's a 2010. There's like, they're all over the place. Well, the one that tickles me is the one that's starring uh, Jim Belushi. Oh, yeah, uh, that's right. Honestly, it looks like it could fit in with our movie based Probably. on the, the <laughs> DVD cover. <laughs> like he was the B, B team. <laughs> you don't see. Uh, but we're talking about the 2005 film starring... Matthew McConaughey. All right, all right, all right. <laughs> Matthew McConaughey, Steve Zahn, William H. Macy, uh, Penelope Cruz. This is actually a really stunning cast. This um, was a great cast. It's a very, very good cast. Uh, I think that they are all fundamentally miscast in their roles based on what the uh, like original Clive Cussler novel was. But I, I do love the chemistry of the, uh, the cast in this movie. I think they're great together. I'm going to tell you right now. I really enjoy this movie. I always have enjoyed this movie. If this movie yep. is on, I will just like leave it running and enjoy <laughs> this movie. I don't have enough criticism of the film itself. Um, it's not going to win any awards, but I, I 100% have some criticism. So I'll be, I'll be interested to get into this. Um, yeah, I agree. It's not going to win any awards, but please go on. It's uh, no, the, the, I mean, there's plenty of criticism to have, but I feel like a majority of mine will come from uh, comparison contrast with the source material. Got it. Okay. Um, and let's just appreciate the absurd premise of a civil war ironclad being washed up in the Sahara desert. <laughs> in sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah. It's I think the science is very uh, loose, super fishy, um, very sus as the kids say. Uh, and, and the, cause I, if, if I remember, if I remember my history correctly, the, the very first ironclad ships that were used in the civil war were river boats. They were not meant for open water. No, which they even mentioned at some point in the film. Okay. Yeah. That there was no way it would have ended up there because it was like, nobody would try to take an ironclad across the Atlantic. That just wouldn't happen. Right. Yeah. Like uh, there's just too much going on with it. I think my um, biggest beef in terms of departure from the source material is like mm -hmm. the big reveal of what was on the ironclad. Cause there's always like, there's always a little bit ah. of a twist from what they think they know. And then the reveal um, 
And in the film, it's all the Confederate gold. Uh, but in the book, it's something else that's way more darker that we'll get into. Well, I'm glad that you did. You read this this particular book. I have read Clive Cussler novels. I have not read Sahara. And so I have enough of a like a passing familiarity with um, like who Dirk Pitt and Al are supposed to be and uh, and just kind of like that that dynamic. But I I don't know this particular story very well. So I'm, I'm glad that you're able to to discuss it from the, the literary standpoint. So real quick plot rundown, Sahara 2005 starring Matthew McConaughey, uh, Dirk Pitt and his buddy Al work for NUMA, the National Underwater Marine Agency. Uh, <laughs> they are basically treasure hunters. Yeah. Um, they're a little bit more than that because some of their stuff is a little more environmental as you go through the books. Yeah. Um, but they're largely they're they're salvage seekers, and, and we should probably caveat this: they are like paramilitary salvage seekers. Like they yes. they are everyone ex navy, but ev- yeah, everyone yeah. is ex military, mm-hmm. um, and with with ties to the government, which we'll go into uh, yeah a little bit later. Anyway, uh, they're treasure hunting off the coast of Africa, and um, Dirk has had this lifelong obsession with trying to track and find out the legend of this ironclad civil war ship. He's been kind of tracking it around the world through the course of his adventures. He gets a lead. Uh, and at the same time, the WHO is investigating uh, this plague that is breaking out in Africa and they will cross paths with a, uh, a warlord mm. in civil war strewn Mali. Yeah. So I, I want to um, I, I want to start this off just by giving my general overall impression of this movie because I wrote it midway through, but it actually ended up holding very true um, through the end of the movie. First of all, I think the opening of this film is incredibly strong, like the uh, the Civil War battle into the you know the office montage into. Um, uh, Ava Rojas, uh, Penelope Cruz's character, doing the initial investigations. Uh, you get every plot beat that you really need in a very short amount of time. And this movie does a great job of showing rather than telling like there it's, it it doesn't just explain. This is what, you know, Dirk doesn't have a whole dialogue about how he's been obsessed with, you know, X, Y, Z, uh, lost Confederate ship. It's all revealed kind of like in, in the Godzilla episode, it's all revealed through, um, you know, newspaper clippings and just sort of like the scattered office. Um, and even the first, just, like the first act into early second act, I think it's all very, very strong. I do think this movie overstays its welcome. Um, it gets to a point where the action becomes completely absurd. Uh, it it totally jumps the shark in the desert surfing scene, which we will get to. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, I, I feel like the the emotional tension of the movie is largely lost because the second half is almost all action with very, very few low points. When it does have low points, it is such severe tonal shifts that I'm not actually sure how the audience is supposed to receive this movie. Is it a serious action movie with a real message to make, or is it kind of a goofy action comedy? The The beginning of the movie sets it up as an action comedy, but it, it makes some weird choices towards the end. Um, on the whole, I do really enjoy this film, um, but I think the, the beginning is much stronger than uh, the end is. I think you should think of Sahara as a mashup of James Bond and Indiana Jones franchises. 
I think I think that's a, a fantastic right down to. I make a comment about uh, Dirk Pitts fights a guy that I'm pretty sure is the German mechanic and the sword fighter from Indy One, just mixed into oh, one character. Yes, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I feel like that fight uh, on top of the tower with the helicopter and everything—that is almost oh, that, that like, one too. Uh, yeah, that's just a direct like lift from uh, Raiders. Yes, in, in my opinion. Yes, <laughs> as the, well no, as it, a lot of like the '80s, uh, like '70s and '80s Bond films. It really is. I think it's, it's an excellent way of putting it. Is he he is kind of in a secret agent, Indiana Jones. Um, so yeah, it's a great great way of uh, thinking of this movie. Um, but yeah, you're right. They do a great job of kind of showing it. I I especially love the um, opening title sequence with uh, just pair. You know, it's panning around. Yeah. The, uh, the the cabin because uh, you you get a nod to you get a feel of what kind of people they are. Yes. Um, as well as a look at kind of the friendships, the dynamics between the characters. You also get a hint to the larger Dirk Pitt franchise. Yeah. There are nods to other books, including yeah. uh, an earlier film adaptation, raise the Titanic, <laughs> which was absolutely terrible. <laughs> isn't uh itc entertainment the reason that we had to change the name of the podcast allegedly yeah allegedly can't be proven probably because we nor, made that up nor denied <laughs> nobody could be reached for comment nobody has tried <laughs> <laughs> uh look when you spend 26 million dollars in 1976 on a movie and it brings in 7 million like you you've you've made risky choices that's all i'm gonna say so Yes, uh, I would advise you guys don't go watch that movie unless you no. want to do a real comparison between the two attempts into Cussler books. Yeah, uh, and yeah. you can decide for yourself which is which is better. <laughs> also, Race the Titanic is just super aged now that we've actually found the Titanic. And, right. Uh, you know, um, doesn't have the same weight. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Uh, so this uh, this film is a more fun take but you're right they they struggle to balance yeah the uh the stakes at times uh especially after they get caught and they're like stumbling around the desert and you're like oh this is very bleak and then there's just a major tonal shift when the winds start blowing their direction well and in in the major tonal shifts the, the first time i really picked up on one and it's it's later in the movie and now i'm actually interested to like go back with tone shifts in mind it's when uh, Dirk is asking um, Al about, he's like, you remember that time that we were in like XYZ country and, and Al's like, yeah. And I got bitten on the ass by the camel. And then it hard cuts to the warlord executing people at the well. And I was like, whoa, this, this is an uncomfortable tone change. Like the, the way that this movie eases in and out of jokes is very abrupt. And I, I actually think that this is just an issue in general with modern filmmaking, although this movie is a little bit older now. Um, but I, I, I feel like the, you know, where jokes are placed, they need some space between serious scenes. If you want to maintain some sort of tonal consistency, because you can do an action comedy that has a ser like a more serious note and tone and arguably this film's B plot. Although I, I will actually argue that there are four plots to this movie, which does get confusing towards the end of the film. Um, 
but th- there is a there is a serious like subplot in this film that accompanies you know the the roguish treasure hunter and i think that that could have been accomplished it just wasn't handled as delicately as as it needed to be yeah so which plot is the main plot is it the plague or is it the treasure hunt yeah and um i i argue that towards the end of the film because there's the treasure hunt which i think is we are expected to take as the a plot the plague, which we are expected to take as the B plot. I argue that in the second half, so, you know, midpoint act two and on, um, there is a C plot, which is the warlord's whole deal. And like, you know, like the, the shit that he's getting himself into uh, with the Merovingian. Uh, and then there is a D plot, which is the team that is trying to rescue Dirk and Al from the desert. And the the thing is, is that they are all kind of pushing in the same direction, but the threads are disparate enough that each one feels like a separate storyline. And uh, I, 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 the argument that I make is basically this probably made much more sense or was easier to execute on the page than it is in a movie. Yeah, I it, it sets you up where you're like, okay, we've got this main character who he's very big about finding this ship. Yes. This this ironclad. And because of the opening of the film, you're like, okay, it's something to do with this ironclad mm-hmm. ship. Mm-hmm. But the first plot point in conflict we experience is the doctors and yes. trying to figure out where the you know what's going on with this this plague. And I I very much call that out. My first criticism of the movie is after a very strong opening, we immediately cut to a new plot and a new character. I would have liked to have at least met Dirk before we move on to the play. Continue. Now, here's a a, a plot inconsistency. I'll point out. Okay. Because the you go the whole film um, and then you find out that Massard's uh, waste processing plant is Mm -hmm. the source of this uh plague right uh, but he doesn't believe that that is happening until yeah. rojas once he's taken her captive rojas tells him that's deep in the film so why is this assassin going after her at the very beginning of the movie <laughs> that's right because he he genuinely you can tell based on his behavior he genuinely does not think that he's the problem because we're we're very much meant to believe that there was something on board the the ship that got released. That's that's the, what they they lead the audience to believe, right? Like mm-hmm. I, I'm not, yeah. Is is that there's something wrong with the ship? Either it's leaching heavy metals, or it had a plague on board, something or other. And so we're expected to believe that that ironclad is the problem. Yeah, it's only because they call it the ship of death because like so many people died after it passed through and that's never adequately explained. But you can assume that that's just a it could just be a a bad timing, you know, in terms of outbreaks in Africa. And I think it's almost a nod to like, you know, the the conquistadors that, you know, when they arrived in in uh, the Yucatan, bringing diseases with them that like the Aztecs had never been exposed to and, and just killing them off by the hundreds of thousands because they, they, they didn't have the immunity for it. And so it makes you wonder, it's like, okay, were did these, I mean, what was it? Uh, consumption, <laughs> you know, tuberculosis yeah. was rampant during, uh, the civil war era. It would have been easy enough for them to bring 
couple of guys that had tuberculosis over to Africa and, and that to spread around those small villages in the 1860s and kill off a ton of people. Um, but it is it, the, the ship being the source of the disease is a very weird MacGuffin because when it gets resolved, like you said, late in the second act as it's not actually that it's, it's, I'm going to call him the Merovingian. I, uh, yes. I, I, I think because it's the only. It's the Lambert Wilson, the same uh, actor who plays the Merovingian in the Matrix Reloaded. And, and I think he can only play one character, and it's the Merovingian. Um, <laughs> but when it's when it is revealed that it's it's his plant, it it's very late in the movie, and it it almost feels like a moving the goalpost. Yeah. So again, I go back to why are they trying to Early kill on. the the yep. doctor in the first place? Yeah, excellent question. Because um, they're not in Mali yet. Yeah. So that that kind of makes no sense. And I'm like, sure. that, there must have been a, a rewrite somewhere that didn't get fixed. <laughs> but that allows us to introduce uh, Dirk Pitt, our white knight of the movie. Yes. And he is, he is just everything <laughs> you want in an action hero because he's not afraid to do what has to be done. But he's charming. He's got a dazzling smile. Uh, he can also have fun. He also has a heart of gold. And <laughs> my one major criticism of him is the puka shell necklace. I was like, you know, I, I think this is everything that Dirk Pitt is supposed to be, minus the puka shell necklace. Not not sure that I'm on board with it, but hey, yeah, character was, choices were made. I think it was uh, in fashion at the time. I do wonder how much both Steve Zahn and Matthew McConaughey, how much they just wore their own fucking clothes for this movie. I don't know that there was a wardrobe department for them. I think they just like brought their own clothes on set and they were like, yeah, that's, that looks good. That's you. There's a fine. lot of beige in this movie. That's, that's another criticism I have. This movie is really very, is. you know, we talked about in rain of fire, like everything is heavily oh, yeah. saturated. Uh, this, yeah. this is slightly less to saturate, but just everything is tans and browns. The art department clearly had a color palette that they were working with. And I mean, that even extends all the way through to the movie poster. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The one standout is uh, Al's red Hawaiian shirt, <laughs> which is such a Magnum PI thing. Um, like it, 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 it recalls um, actually it recalls tailspin and blue wearing, you know, mm -hmm. the, the Hawaiian shirt. Uh, like it just, it, that's what I think of is I'm like, these two guys are like uh, uh, Baloo and Launchpad McQuack in Tailspin, you know, in, in terms of like their their uh, their character design and, and execution. Yeah. And uh, which leads us to introducing like the whole Numa crowd, Ruby, yes. Admiral Sandecker, uh, William H. Macy, by the way, like plays that character very well in the books. Sandecker is a little more of a like a Scottish firecracker. Yep. Uh, but. I think he just he does it so well in this movie. And and this is this is one of my big criticisms that I actually have a hard time calling it a criticism is I think that every character in this book or in this movie is fundamentally miscast, but they play their roles in such a cool way and in such an enjoyable way that it's hard to be critical of it. Like I I don't think Macy is the right casting for Sandecker. I don't think that Steve Zahn is the right casting for uh, Al Giardino, but I, I can't help but love the performances that they bring to the screen. And so I like it, it's it's a it's a criticism, but at the same time, I'm like I, I don't hate it. I actually I really like what they end up doing. No, and that's the thing. I really enjoy this adaptation. Yeah, uh, 
from the book. The like the book's okay, and there's a couple of plot sure. points in the book um, that I think were better than what they did in the movie. But overall, I think the movie is way more enjoyable. Sure. Um, but another criticism, yeah. um, the turnaround on King Batine from pulling him up from the depths of the ocean floor to <laughs> it being all ready for presentation at a museum that night, <laughs> that turnaround's way too quick. I'm just saying. <laughs> First of all, I, I, I love this whole sequence when they're pulling him up out of the water. I, my note is this movie is pretty effective American propaganda. Like the oh, whole yeah. sequence is very woot woot USA, but I love it. Like with a weird, an American band playing in the background, right down to like them raising, I was like, man, this is they're They are 100% stealing the, you know, the treasures of another country. And yet I can't help but be like, yeah, this is awesome. Um, (laughs) You know, you're talking about uh, sharp tonal shifts in the film. Like when stuff is very serious and dark, you have the score. And then when things get fun, you jump into like Southern rock most of the time. I do hate the score in this movie, but I love the soundtrack. I like, I like some of the score. Do you? Uh, Some of it, like the, the, the track around the ironclad. I enjoy. Uh, that's a good point. Yeah, that is pretty good. Um, but yeah, it's uh, you don't. So they don't steal King Batine. Like they are contracted to salvage it and bring it to the the Nigerian museum or wherever they are. I think they're. In it's Nigeria. so it does it does stay with us. with country of origin. Uh, that's that's what we're led to assume. Okay. In that, in right, that gala. Have, all right, then that's 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 better. But it's been financed by Yves Massard. Right. Uh, but it's very interesting because even though Numa has been contracted, you know, financed by Massard, you see Sanducker throw him under the bus with the WHO. Like, oh, yeah, it's great. A hundred percent. He's he's clearly not a fan. <laughs> it was just like, oh, he'll have the answers you you need. He does a lot of business in Mali. and just kind of goes about his day um and then this is where we get another uh great moment of like not just telling the audience but you let it unfold where dirk arrives at the gala and he's like okay so my buddy just found this coin and sand are like not the ironclad shit again right (laughs) yes yes uh and and that's the thing is like I, i think at this point because we get so much just great character chemistry and interaction like there's just there's just fun scenes interwoven between rain wilson steve zahn matthew mcconaughey william h macy like they're they're fluid interaction throughout this whole sequence my note at this point is actually that i should probably be watching this movie more critically like looking out for nonsensical crap that just doesn't work especially in terms of international affairs and geopolitics but the movie is so fun at this point that i like I, i i can't I, I I could not like take it with a critical eye, and my concern was like I, f- I wonder if people just watch this movie way too seriously, perhaps. And that's one of the reasons that it has a six point oh on IMDb, which I I do think there's problems with this movie, but I think it d- it deserves better than that. Well, and we will get into um, <laughs> some of the issues with Sahara, yeah, that don't have a lot to do with the product that you saw on screen. Yeah, it's behind the camera crap. Sure. Um, the highlight of this movie is the the boat sequence um, on Sandecker's 
yacht. Ah, yes. The, yes. Yeah, the battle on the river, I think, is kind of the, the highlight. But then there's majority of the movie still to go. <laughs> right. It. But this well, is and, also where the plot changes. And, and so that's the thing is I what I remember because it's been a while since I've seen this movie. What I do remember about this movie is that boat chase sequence. And mm-hmm. I thought it was deep into the film. I forgot that it was like just before the halfway point. Mm-hmm. And that's where I my concern at that point was, is this movie going to overstay its welcome? And the answer to me very much is yes. Um, I that mo- that moment is such a it's such a hype moment that it's very, very difficult to top. And so the movie at this point becomes almost straight ahead action again. Like there are very, very few low moments after uh, the boat chase sequence that leads to the tension being kept at a level that to me became exhausting. Like I, I got to a point where I was just like, I'm just sort of like waiting for this movie to end itself. And I think that there's some tightening up that could have been done um, to give those high moments like the Calliope chase, which is completely absurd, but a lot of fun. That could have been a bigger, more standout moment if it had been better balanced. But the Calliope sequence uh, definitely shows you who everybody is. Like, sure. It really does. Like who they are under pressure. Um, you know, Rudy is a scientist he's he's <laughs> in the action but he's just like i am just the data guy um right and al and uh dirk are just you know buddies since forever and um under fire under pressure they still are just like they are the team you want right uh did you catch the football reference because i know you love football in these movies I, how did I miss it this time? They're crouching down and I was like, okay, fourth and long. What do you want to do? Oh, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, I, if I'll say this, if I miss that line, it's because Steve Zahn just delivers everything with such panache. Like it, it just, everything rolls out of his mouth in this movie. Like nothing feels forced. His characterization, again, I don't think it's properly Al Giardino, but I, he just, the character that he does come up with is so excellent that I don't care. And uh, yeah, stuff like that just comes out of his mouth. And and like, I'm not criticizing the dialogue. I, I think the reason I don't criticize the dialogue in this movie is because it, it does largely sound like decent conversation. It sounds for the most part, like how people would actually talk. Uh, and that makes me wonder how much of this was um, in a certain light ad-libbed. Like, I'm sure they had a loose script to work from, but like, I, I, I do wonder how much of this is just like, okay, you need to convey X, Y, Z, say what you think you would, you would say. Yeah. I mean, actors are encouraged to, uh, you know, have some fun with scenes sometimes, yeah. you know, after multiple shots. Um, one of my favorite exchanges with Steve Zahn's character is when Dirk hears the the horn and just like leaves him at the cafe and he's like no i got the check no please no i get it all the time i know but please I get it all the time i'll take care of it yes <laughs> that's a good one yeah that's that's a great scene um do you so when they're like oh i think we're gonna have to pull a panama and everyone's like a panama a panama even sandecker's on the phone which i think that is a hilarious bit through the whole the whole action sequence you can't lose sight of the fact that Sandecker is on the phone the whole time. <laughs> Listening 
and, and, and this this is one of my favorite like subtle comedy moments is it's Al who starts talking to him and Sandecker just goes off and he's like chewing Look. him out and he just goes it's for you and just <laughs> it's such a dirk yeah. I love I love that is and it you just, can hear him for you you can hear him like raging through the phone at times yes. like as like everything is going super intense <laughs> you know even to the point where he's like they're ignoring me and he turns around and nobody's paying attention to him. He's no, like, everyone's, he's, ignoring me. everyone's ignoring me <laughs> but just the whole uh uh like rudy doesn't know and he's just like you know a, a panama you know what what happened to panama he's like oh well we weren't in panama we were in nicaragua it's like well then why do you call it panama he's like because we thought we were in panama we thought we were in panic <laughs> and um the the payoff of that because my my big note here was 100 percent. this is not how this works like it's oh, yeah. actually been proven that um like the 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 heat from cigars or cigarettes would not ignite most fuel sources the way that they are presented to in movies and second that that gas tank would burn internally for a while before we got that kind of explosion so i i even wrote like i don't think this is how this works and i do love that immediately after i wrote that note i got a personal payoff of them in the water and uh rain wilson um is like wow so that's what you guys did the first time and he's like well it didn't really work the first time (laughs) and i was like yeah it wouldn't work (laughs) and that's where we shift focus and the guys are like okay we're not gonna look for the ship anymore because our our doctor friends are in trouble we have to go into white knight syndrome and rescue the damsel in distress. Uh, thankfully, uh, Dr. Rojas does not go like full damsel in distress. Like she's feisty. She, you know, she contributes, saves their ass a little bit. Did you notice? Oh, sidebar. Uh, talking about Steve Zahn's interpretation of Al being very different. Um, I was watching this movie and I didn't have time to do a third pass, but I don't think you see Al kill anyone on screen. No. And, and, and this is one of my biggest like gripes about his, the, the deviation from the, the uh, Al Giardino of the, the books is Al is supposed to be very tough and capable in his own right. If, if I remember, he's actually supposed to be like sizably bigger than Dirk Pitt too. Like he is, he, if I remember Al is like just a big bear of a guy. Um, now it's been about 20 years since I've read a Dirk, pit novel so i could be wrong about that but no i they they very much present him in this as the goofy sidekick who has like technical knowledge like you know he disarms the bomb at the end of the movie and he knows how to set up like you know the the boat to explode and all that but it's dirk is the one that takes care of like the gritty in your face action which is i'm like is that just a a a a choice to like focus on your hero character and you're relegating Al to being the sidekick. But the thing is like, like in, in the fight, when they come to the settlement to rescue uh, Rojas, yeah. um, you know, he, he knocks out the one guy in the Jeep. Yes. Takes, takes their gun and everything does some good gun safety there, checks his clip and all that stuff. And when he's exchanging <laughs> gunfire with the guy under the other Jeep, he doesn't shoot at the guy. He shoots the tires out. So the, car crushes him yes then he runs out of ammo and he has to help uh dirk because there is another shooter far away in the sand dune so he kind of runs after him and tackles him and he does dispose of him he does kill him because you hear the gunshot but it's off screen and interesting so i'm very curious as to what 
the creative decision was there. I couldn't find any source material on it in time. Uh, but I just thought that was an interesting note that yeah. throughout the film, you know, he does contribute, you know, he does help dispose of the bad guys, but you don't actually see him do it. I know that in a lot of movies, there's actually like rules. I say rules. Like it, they, they are um, like loose guidelines over how you treat certain characters and how they're, they're supposed to be like portrayed on screen. And I wonder if this was a very intentional decision where they're like, basically we want people to like Al in a different way. And if we show him like viciously kill somebody on screen, he loses that like affability that he has and that sort of like goofiness factor. And so we undo the kind of characterization that we've, we've created for him because it's, it's an interesting point that he's, he's never actually seen uh, dealing with somebody in the same way that uh, uh, Dirk does. You have a point there. Yeah. Cause he's, he's definitely the more approachable one. Um, right. With the, the humor, um, a good like grounding rod for Dirk. Um, his, his when he play, plays soccer with the uh, children, um, which is a great scene for that character, but it does bring up a huge issue that I have with this movie, which is so much of it relies on coincidence and happenstance. Oh yeah, yeah. Because if he was not playing soccer, you would not find a very well done cave drawing. Of the ironclad extraordinarily like an entire history of it painted yeah. on the inside of this this cave that was almost 200 years ago and uh it looks fresh it looks wonderful uh but there are there are a lot of i know this is getting away from the original point of like uh al as a character and we can we can touch back on this but there's a lot of happenstance in this movie that i'm like uh, if it literally had not happened exactly this way this film could not proceed yes well and we'll have our biggest happenstance moment in the finale. Oh my God. That annoyed the crap out of me so much. Um, it's just, it's uh fortuitous that the ship's location will happen to be very close to the source of the Niger contaminant. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, again, <laughs> the, it happens because the plot needs it to happen. Yes. But, uh, like Ava, holds her own as she a does. character, you know, she, you know, she saves Dirk's ass there in the rescue. <laughs> uh, and then you hook up with another plot point. Cause you said okay. you had four plot points. Oh yes. 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 Yep. Uh-huh. So in the background of all this, <laughs> there is a civil war going on in Mali. Right. General Kasim has instituted a coup and, in the process of taking over the country and quashing the Tuareg rebellion. Yes. And that is conflict for the WHO because they can't get in there because they're not allowed to go in there. But if they're going to find the source of this plague, they have to go there. Um, so it seems like Kasim, doesn't want them messing around in there because he doesn't want them bringing attention to, I guess, war crimes that he would be conducting that he's getting. Yeah. Nothing to do with the illness. And actually, uh, toward the end of the film, Kasim has a, has a line of dialogue that I feel like is very prescient and should actually resonate with audience. Cause I think it's quite topical. 
Nobody cares about Africa. Yeah. He's like, Masari, relax. It's Africa. Nobody cares about Africa. Yeah. I, I, I noted that as well. It's a very good line. And um, he could have only ruined it by looking dead ass at the camera. <laughs> delivering it because it's absolutely it's so it, this is this is a complete spur but i it, it reminds in a, in a in a completely inappropriate way it reminds me of um i love movies that absolutely know exactly what they are and are not trying to hide it and another film that i watched recently was hot tub time machine and that movie has a moment where craig t robinson looks straight in this is not like a fourth wall break this is just looking straight into the camera going it's like some kind of hot tub time machine and then his face just goes blank like yes this is it this is the premise (laughs) we we are not going to explain anything any more than what you've seen just get on board at this point um um I think if this movie, uh, if Sahara is trying to deliver any kind of message, because there are some, there's some ecological messages in it. There is just, you know, some like general, like geopolitics and humanity uh, messaging. If it has a message, it is, we should probably care more about like, you know, the, the terrible things that are, are going on in Africa. And it makes its point with a sledgehammer when he looks straight at the camera and says, nobody cares about Africa. Uh yeah, it's a uh, thankfully he doesn't like full on spike the lens, but you're it's like, true. there's yeah. there's the message right there. Yes. And uh, yeah, sure enough, there's all this bureaucratic red tape that is in the way, you know, when when Sandecker and Rudy bring their findings to the embassy uh-huh. and uh, this just, you know, it's a delicate situation. It's a very <laughs> situation. We're going to, you know, deliberate over this. I uh, know you're on the timetable, but, uh, you know, we're just I'm, I'm just going to pass the buck right up and that that's the that's the good thing to do see you later oh whoops forgot the file uh he that, that character is such a wormy bureaucrat and i feel like the people that run embassies especially in like a country like like molly that would be more dangerous to united states citizens i don't feel like they're that as inept as he is made out to be like he is very much an obstacle for the sake of there being an obstacle. And I'm like, I feel like the, the actual people running these, because most of the people like who run embassies work for intelligence organizations, you know, they're, they're not just a, uh, a liaison for um, citizens in that country. They're, they're also, you know, but there is, I mean, there is a time, you know, stuff does take time. Like the, the process of passing that information along, he has to disagree a plan of action from his higher ups like that all takes a lot of time. And he is, this is a character that's not going to take initiative. Yeah. Um, and yeah. frankly, just doesn't believe that we're looking at this kind of scenario, this, this kind of doomsday thing. There's just no way. Right. Um, yeah. This movie goes, this movie goes from an isolated issue in Molly. That is like the backdrop to a treasure hunting to, Oh, by the way, the world is going to end very quickly the books kind of do this too a little bit. So <laughs> it's, <laughs> but anyway, yeah. So you're introduced to, uh, the Tuareg rebels and, uh, another clue about the ironclad. It's like, right. oh, that's so neat. But even then he's like, okay, cool. The ironclads up this way somewhere. However, uh-huh. there's the more important thing 
at the, the, the more germane at hand is underwater underground river system still exists. Yes. So the, yes, the, the contaminant is somewhere underground. Now we have a landmark to go to this old French fort. Um, and we have to try to figure things out. And, uh, luckily there's this shiny beacon in the distance <laughs> and it is this solar plant. I think the conceit here is kind of far fetched, but also kind of clever. The idea that you're harnessing solar power, right. To vaporize toxic waste. Um, Correct me. Okay. Laws of physics. Um, <laughs> you, you can't create and destroy matter, right? You can only change it. it, it so the, um, and it, it's, I, I think it's both matter and energy. There's, I, I think there's, I, I, I think there's might be one other, like information is the other one. Um, and in, in, information is a weird, uh, definition in, in physics where it's like, how a thing was assembled. So like one of the, one of the big mysteries of black holes is where does the information go? Meaning like if a molecule is sucked into a black hole, it's, it's going to be deatomized and, and ripped apart in, at an atomic level. So where does the information that said how this thing was once assembled, where, where does that go? So I think the, the, if, if I remember correctly and I, I could be wrong on this, it's matter, energy, and information cannot be destroyed. They can simply change their, their state. We should have brought Neil deGrasse Tyson on here. It would have been really helpful. Yeah. Damn it. Uh, all, anyway, the point being like, okay, you incinerate all this toxic waste. That means it's like dissipating into the air, right? Right. We, we just saw this in Ohio. <laughs> so, but that's, that's fine. I guess that's fine. It, it, it's, it, it is very, it is a very loosely defined evil scheme. Because well, I, I mean, the thing. it's not, it, that's something I, because initially when I watched this and stuff, I always thought of it as an evil scheme and it's really not, it's more ignorance and incompetence than malevolence. Okay. Uh, that's interesting. That's because a good again, point. Massard supposedly does not realize that he is polluting. He's the one that everything is leaching water. from. Yeah. He knows he's got... He, the terrible things he's doing is that he's paying off this warlord and using uh, the warlord's captives as labor for his plant. That's the evil right. part. Yeah. Uh, and he's uh, hiding the truth of his facility, which is that he cannot dispose of as much waste as he is advertising that he can. Right. Uh, because he has issues with windstorms and keeping like the panels at, peak efficiency and all that, which indirectly answers a question of mine of why we don't have like solar farms all over the Sahara desert. Um, <laughs> but uh, assuming the movie has that correct. Yeah. yeah sure. <laughs> uh, but the, you know, so he's, he's doing what every big evil corporation with, toxic waste does he buries it and hides it away uh we saw this in our first episode turtles turtles two, secret <laughs> of the use. Yes. Um, disposed disposed yes disposed disposed at, at least sahara attempts to explain how their stuff gets disposed <laughs> how things are Whereas secret of the use is just like it's gone it goes into the magic machine <laughs> and it's gone that's all you need to know um so it's not Again, uh, Massar gets confronted 
by the doctor being like, you are poisoning the water. It's leaking into the underground river system that's here. Can't believe you don't know there's an underwater like river system here, you idiot. But okay. Right. Um, and Massard's like, ah, oh, you're you're lying. But he will not drink the water. And that's when he later confronts Kasim, being like, I think I need to shut down the plant and figure out what's going on. Uh, and, yeah. Yeah. And Kasim's like, okay, fine, but you're still gonna pay me. Right. <laughs> I, I mean, the, he is, he's definitely supposed to be the, like, there's almost supposed to be like an empathetic level to, uh, to Massard, um, which <laughs> I, I, it's a very, it's, it's a very popular thing to have like complicated villains anymore, right? Like you, you're supposed to have some level of, of empathy for them, but this movie, I feel like wants to take that risk, but then is also like, well, but we need somebody who's fully a bad guy to root against, which is where Kasim comes in and yeah. and I, I I I actually would have liked it if they had just if they had taken that risk with both of them or narrowed it down to one villain um and tried to present some sort of humanizing element to Kasim as well like tell me why I, I mean like is it just a naked thirst for power that he wants like what is it about him that that makes him complicated instead of him just being a complete terrorizing force well and, and in the book, these characters are way more one-dimensional. Which I would expect. Yeah, they're way more, you get way more like Bond villain right. level. Um, the, so we have the the showdown. Well, they get caught when they discover <laughs> the the underground uh, storage. They, they get caught and yep. um, Al and Dirk are being uh, driven across the desert and First of all, how lucky is it that that truck was built the way it was? <laughs> Again, <laughs> this is a moment of the movie needs the plot to happen. And so there is just all this weird coincidental happenstance that if I I, I get it, like, <laughs> you know, things have to cert- work out a certain way. But this <laughs> the fact that they can kick themselves and the entire truck bed off the truck and the guys driving it don't even fucking notice. I'm like, I come on. <laughs> yes. The bad guys are, um, generously incompetent when hilariously <laughs> inept. Uh, but then they're, they're just like trudging across the desert and they find the plane. And this, I think is my biggest beef with the film is they find the plane and the tonal shift happens again. Uh, Southern rock yep. music. Uh-huh. There are, uh, what, what is that called? It's not windsurfing, but it's basically they've, they've rigged this plane to <laughs> harness wind power to drive them across the desert and their mood has shifted. They're great. They're ready to go. They're full of vigor, even though they have been trudging through the desert for like a day over a day now. Yes. Um, but honestly, it's not my b- biggest beef with that moment. It's the plane because the plane itself is a plot point in the book. It's not they just come across a random plane. Like you're introduced to the plane and the backstory, like back in history, uh, you know, who and what this plane was and, you know, what happened. uh, And you just don't get that. So it's just read as, oh, they just come across a a crashed plane. That was lucky. Um, And... and this is where uh, this is where with a lot of this is just a general issue with a lot of adaptations from book to movie is you lose some of the depth right 
you yes. can do a lot more on the page than you ever will be able to in a film because you, you just have more space to let things breathe. Whereas this movie tried to accomplish everything it needed to in 120 minutes. And I still think it's too long. Um, and uh, yet you're, there, there's no way that that piece of the story is ever going to be brought to light in a way that feels convincing or that doesn't further drag on the, the length of the film. My note here is that at this point in the movie, it feels like a parody of the first act. Like it has, com- it's become completely non-serious. Um, it is, it's, it, it doesn't have that like tightly wound feel anymore. It's, we are surfing across the desert on a downed plane. Matthew McConaughey just whooping and hollering the whole way. And it's like, like, like you said, they have been dragging a truck bed through the desert for a day at this point, not to mention everything else that, that has gone up. Uh, like, like I'm like I it, it's it, it strains credulity so much that I like I, I was just getting distracted at this point in the movie. And I think the problem with having two villains is you get like two climaxes because you have yes. this big climax at the solar plant yep. with Massard, and you're like, okay, that's one plot down. Uh huh. And then but- like we're home. We're home free. We can get people in here to take care of the chemicals or whatever. Nope. There's Kasim because Kasim can read Massard like a book, basically. Yeah. And so Massard's lying to him, being like, "No, the the doctors are all dead. Like the woman, she's dead. Don't don't worry about it." And Kasim basically can tell he's full of shit. He's like, "No, nah, yeah." And yep. So he's marshaled all his forces to go assault Massard's plant because he wants the doctor, right? Because he doesn't want this getting out. Um, so that is the plot development that allows them to have a showdown with Kasim, which allows them to unearth the ironclad, which leads to my other favorite dialogue interaction, which is okay. when Al is trying to open the cannon hatch from the outside. And he finally gets oh. it open and tugs it inside and they have this heated exchange back and forth. Of like, What took you so long? What took me? I stopped for coffee. Did you get a receipt? <laughs> yeah, I got a receipt and I got you one too. Oh, you're the best, Al. <laughs> <laughs> um, first of all, I, I, I need to touch on this because the showdown in or the, the, the climax in the actual uh, plant um, Steve Zahn, uh, Al Giardino dies in that scene. I don't know if you know this, but like when the massive burst of flame comes through that tunnel and he just jumps away from it. No, and he's, he's barehanded holding on to this metal apparatus. He's fully fucking dead. I'm sorry. Like there, there is just, there are a lot of moments in this movie that are like, it must be nice to be the main character and be able to wear so much plot armor. This one, I just couldn't get past it. I was like, Steve Zahn is dead. It's it, that that's it. It's over. It's, you know, sad to see him go. He, he died here. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the actual battle with, <laughs> with the ironclad where they are like, they, they just find the ship buried among the sand after being nearly mowed down by a helicopter because it happens to unearth it. Yeah, because they were throwing out the explosives to create that giant dust cloud. And it that displacement unearthed the ironclad. It's so unsatisfactory that <laughs> that is how they find the ship. They're like, oh, look, it's just right here. It turns out. <laughs> so I, I, I don't. 
I don't love that. Also, the using a Civil War era cannon to bring down a helicopter. I, I like I know they're good at what they do, Josh. I know they are, but I just I don't know. This <laughs> this feels like this this feels like a lot. <laughs> well, it's and it's it's not just that the it's not just the cannonball, but it's the explosive they sh- they stuffed into the cannonball, which I, I had questions on because it's it, it's such a like a short moment that you you'll miss it and you'll be like, wait, is this how cannonballs work? Do you shoot them and then they explode? <laughs> it's like no, no 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 no, they stuffed a bomb inside of it. Yeah, because uh, because no cannonballs don't explode; they just bounce around a lot. Yeah. And they, I mean, they could be devastating if they impact the right area, but yeah. <laughs> and I, I remember having a high school history teacher who talked about cannons on a battlefield. He's like, they were different at, at sea because the idea of the cannon at sea was to poke so many holes in your enemy's ship that it would sink. But on the battlefield, they were actually more of a psychological thing. Like they were very frightening. They made a lot of noise. They weren't particularly effective because they were pretty hard to aim and they weren't doing like what we might call AOE or splash damage. It was, you know, this ball would hit and it would bounce and roll. And if you were in its very narrow path, you something terrible was going to happen to you. But they just they did not kill as many people as they are like portrayed to have killed Um, that most battlefield deaths in the Civil War era came from lead poisoning and infection. Um, but not many, not as many people were, were being killed by cannons. And so (laughs) I feel like this is a, uh, this movie actually kind of gets it right (laughs) at first when the cannon punches through into the helicopter, the also, I feel like that cannonball stops very conveniently. Like it breaks the window, but I feel like it also should have impacted the back of the helicopter with a certain amount of force. No, it just kind of like pops in and then sits down. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's Civil War technology. We've we've discussed before the limitations <laughs> of Civil War technology. Um, this is our actually other podcast. <laughs> yeah, this is uh, the second time we see Civil War technology in action in this film mm-hmm. because uh, you know they they hate, they jump on that train, which probably yeah. had Civil War breaks. Probably, <laughs> Jesus. Uh, yeah, so I, I, um, I, 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 this, this whole sequence, especially down to this is such a bad guy decision to make where he has, I don't know, a dozen tanks pointed at it. And he's like, no, leave them for me. Yes. Thank God for bond villain megalomania. Uh, And uh, also (laughs) he's been firing the gun on this gunship constantly first of all, I, I think it's out of ammunition at this point i don't know that Should much about be. like but i feel like it's run out of ammunition second we get this very dramatic like close in where he flips up the little red cap on the trigger i'm like hasn't this just been up the entire time like on his final pass you know we see him flip it back up to i was like i feel like this guy opens that up and then just leaves it there because he knows he's just gonna hammer down that trigger and just any anyway well that's the thing like if he has if he has like missiles on board or something like why has he not used it yet rockets anything it's it's completely absurd the way that he just wants to fire his armor piercing rounds through this ship and hope that he oh my god 
Oh my God. And this is, again, at, at this point, the movie has moved the goalposts so many times that, uh, at this point, I'm I'm like just not invested in this battle. I'm just like this is completely absurd. But this is where they repeat a joke, where like <laughs> they've done this, and the army has surrendered, and they're both like this should not have worked. Right. It's like they're trying to hold on to the audience a little bit, or they're like, don't worry, we know it's absurd. <laughs> It, it, exactly because i i was midway through a note like no if they shot down the helicopter these guys still have again a dozen fucking tanks they're not just going to throw down their guns and give them i'm still not actually convinced even with like the army behind them that they would have thrown down their guns because i i need to point this out one more time there's a dozen tanks like get inside your armored vehicles and shoot at the people on the ridge that have machine guns like when it comes down to it, the machine gun versus a tank, the tank is going to win. I don't understand why they are so afraid to use the tanks that they have ridden a, into battle with. Is it a numbers game? I'm not, I'm not, I don't know. <sighs> I don't know. I, I, I think they should have come in in trucks. It's the fact that they come in in tanks that I'm like, <laughs> you, you guys win. You win all of this. Get in your tank and use it. Yeah. But anyway. thankfully, thankfully, uh, they are mercifully incompetent they they are yep completely inept um so this is where i'll i'll discuss a little bit of the uh, departures from source material please do film. um the big reveal about the ironclad is not so yeah. much that the ironclad is there but the the legend was you know the the captain was carrying one of these special confederate gold coins yeah there's only five ever made mm -hmm. and that fifth one was on that ship and it somehow you know, made its way into Africa. The big reveal is, oh no, there are boxes full of this gold. There is so much Confederate gold on this, this uh -huh. ship. Um, in the book, it's much darker. And I, I can get why they didn't make this choice, but I also think it would have been cool to make the choice. The okay. Ironclad in the book has a special guest on board being kept prisoner. Okay. And it is revealed when they unearth the ironclad in modern time, it is revealed it is Abraham Lincoln. They had abducted Lincoln during one of their uh, battles. And the plan was to hold the president ransom, but then the ironclad was lost. And the Southern forces continued to lose and they didn't have their bargaining chip anymore. So they had to orchestrate this plot where they had to put someone in place to get killed uh, to make like Lincoln was assassinated, but it was actually just a, a conspiracy cover-up, which is what these books kind of do. They, they put a little twist on the history that, you know, wow. Uh, yeah. So they would have found the remains of a Lincoln. This, this question seems uh, appropriate given that reveal but I feel like the answer is so ridiculous that it's going to cut it out from under being as they're in Saharan Africa and they find this ship in the middle of no, how do they know it's Abraham Lincoln on board? Is it that they find a skeleton wearing a stovetop hat? <laughs> no, 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 no. They can tell by no. the tattered remains of what he is wearing. No. <laughs> yes. No, that's so unfortunate. <laughs> so unfortunate. 
Oh my God. I wasn't expecting that to be the real answer. I thought it was going to be something like Ava, you know, runs like a DNA test. Just, and, and I was like, well, why do they choose that skeleton to run the DNA test? But no, it's because of his hat. <laughs> yes. God damn it. It's because it's, yeah, the skeleton is in a particular spot. Clive, you're better like, than that. T- <laughs> so Clive Cussler has an issue, man. Um, he makes me think of Alan Moore a little bit because okay. <laughs> he twice now is like, yeah, sure. You can adapt my movie. Just give me like a little bit of like creative input. And they're like, okay. And then he becomes a pain in the ass. And, uh, these productions are like, okay, Clive, go sit in the corner. We're, we're kind of done with this. Like enough, like let us make our movie. Right. Paid you. Let us make our movie. And he gets irate over the adaptation that comes. I think now I have a theory. Okay. Um, In his books, if you remember the Dirk Pitt books, uh, he puts himself as a character in the books. Every time he plays like wise old man that tells them (laughs) where they need to go (laughs) to get a certain thing (laughs) at a certain time. Um, And (laughs) why is this in every movie? (laughs) It's in. Yeah. It's in every book. He like shows up and helps Dirk move on to the next stage of the plot. Uh, And in every book, Dirk promptly forgets about him. (laughs) It's just a comment of like, Oh, who are you? Oh, name's Clive. Oh, what a nice guy. Do, 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 do next book. Same guy in a completely different part (laughs) of the world, a completely different time. Don't worry about that. Uh, He's just like, Oh, didn't catch your name. Oh, my name's Clive. Oh, cool. What a nice old man. Do, 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 do. It infuriates me. And so I will tell people, if you read the Dirk Pitt novels, do not read them back to back to back because it will get old quick. Yeah. I, I you know what though? I've, um, we, we briefly t- touched on this when we talked about, uh, the Conan movie. I feel like anytime you engage in a serialization, you know, a- any character that has multiple stories, uh, written by the same author, eventually that author, I feel like runs out of stylistic plot points and it does kind of just all run together. Um, I mean, there's, there's like a dozen, at least Dirk Pitt novels, aren't there? I think there's like 20. Yeah. There's it's, it's quite a few. And so after a certain point, yes, it becomes formulaic. Now, part of that's because that author knows exactly what their audience is expecting. And, um, in a certain kind of way, it's like Harlequin romance, right? Like they know you are looking for certain beats to be there. You're looking for certain plot points to occur for there to just be certain like thematic elements that are one. And and I I appreciate the consistency from that standpoint because they're very receptive to their audience and they give their audience what they, they want, right? Like these aren't authors that are necessarily taking a ton of risks with their, um, their writing craft. They're delivering to their audience. And I genuinely respect that. Like, I, I think it's important to, um, uh, to give your audience what they want to a point. Um, and, uh, then I think that if you want to grow in your craft, you need to do some subversion, but that's a whole other discussion. Um, so yeah, I, I could see where these books just become, completely formulaic after a certain point. And you're like, yeah, it's, it's just basically the same story over and over. Yeah. Um, other differences, uh, is the way they dispose of Massard. Okay. Um, in the, in the film, you're led to understand that he's been poisoned at the, at the restaurant, yeah. like with water, uh, in the book, they strand him in the desert. Oh my God. And his only provisions are the contaminated water. 
Oh, uh, that's dark. Like it's intense. Yeah. Like these yeah. characters are much darker uh in the books. Right. Like they're not as fun loving. They have a good time, but they're not fun loving like Matt, the McConaughey, and Steve Zahn's like portrayals. And, and and I think I told you like my initial um exposure to to uh Clive Cussler and Dirk Pitt was that there was um like an adaptation of a lot of his books done for like junior readers. And so my mom got me like this youth version of a Clive Cussler novel. I think it was Inca gold was the one that, that I read. Um, and, uh, I loved it so much as a kid, you know, probably being like 12 or 13 at the time that I immediately was like, I, I want to read the actual thing. And like, as a kid, I was an advanced reader. Like I, I was reading Michael Crichton at that age. Um, and so I was like, I can handle, Clive Cussler, right? Like I, I've, you know, I'm reading all this like, you know, high-minded sci-fi. I, I can, I, I was an arrogant kid. Um, I was like, I can handle Clive Cussler. And I got like pages into the real Dirk Pitt novel. And I'm, I'm now struggling to remember which one it, it was. And like in the first 10 pages, there's discussions of like cannibalism. And, and I was like, what the fuck is this? This is not <laughs> <laughs> what I expected. And so part of me does wonder if the adaptation that came to screen for Sahara was actually like the junior Clive Cussler novel that they pulled. And they're like, let's get the oh, one interesting. written for kids <laughs> and, ad- and adapted that instead of the true. Because, I, I mean, there is there is an absolute tonal difference between what we see in the movie and what a real Dirk Pitt novel is. So let's discuss uh, why this movie did not do as well as we think maybe it should have. Okay. Um, it was released in 2005. Yeah. Um, it had an initial budget of 80 million, but that ballooned to 160 million. Yikes. And it only made worldwide. It only made 119. Holy shit. Yes. Uh, Okay. So this was, first of all, even, even if they'd stuck to their original budget, the worldwide still would have made this a financial loss because it, it would have needed to have made at least $160 million on an $80 million budget in order to be considered a financial success. I, I am shocked that it did not, because this, when, what time of year was it released? Because I feel like this is a solid summer blockbuster mm-hmm. that should have done fine. In, in theaters. What was the release date? Because I, I, I we've talked about this before. There There is something to be said about the timing of a movie's release. If it was up against other things in theaters, you know, if it matched the kind of season that it was released into. And this to me seems like a summer blockbuster popcorn movie that it, back in 2005, I'd have gone to see this in theaters. I'd have been like, yeah, this seems like a fun way to spend an afternoon. I can't remember if I went and saw it in theaters or not. I think I may have. I'm actually now trying to remember what my uh, original experience watching this movie was. Because um, I... Uh, April I was, 8th, 2005. So that is sort of weird timing. Season. Yeah. No, I mean, it, I, we're, we're actually like on the cusp of that right now as we head into, um, you know, in, into March and April. I it, spring is not a great time for movies. Like that's when people are trying to get back outside. I feel like like the, the whole thing about the summer blockbuster is 
at the heat of summer, people want to go indoors because it's so fucking hot out. They don't want to be out. They want to like a break from it. So they want to go into the air conditioning. So you make these fun popcorn movies that are just a, you know, a good ride and everybody has a good time getting out of the heat for a few hours and then they go back outside and play. But spring is when people are trying to emerge from essentially winter hibernation. They want to be outside. The weather is very pleasant. There's no need to take a break from that. It's it's a different kind of movie that's supposed to be coming out in in spring, and so I I wonder how much that impacted the uh, the release of this film. Big issue though is um, we have another production that just uh, was bad with its money. Uh, yes, um, I I am astonished that the budget doubled. Uh, again, pulling from uh, Wikipedia, uh, there was a forty six second action sequence that cost roughly two million dollars to film. And it's not even in the final cut of the movie. Holy hell. A total of 10 screenwriters were used to polish up the script with four receiving credit. I was going to say, what did they actually spend that money on? Because this does not look like a $160 million movie. Uh, Bribery. (laughs) (laughs) They filmed on location in Morocco. Uh. Um, there this this movie ended up being tied up in uh the legal system for i think close to a decade okay um over like distribution costs and uh bribery in morocco and um like crew mistreatment and mismanagement uh just like a lot of again a lot of unfortunate stuff behind the camera and Got then it. of course some stuff with um uh, some stuff with Cussler himself <laughs> yeah. among some of the items in the budget were bribes to the Moroccan government. Some of which may have been legally questionable under American law. Oh that my sounds, God. That sounds nice. Um, <laughs> the end of the movie, you can tell like they were, they had plans to make this a franchise. Um, yeah. But obviously that did, did not happen. Did not come to pass. Uh, but what do you think? What do you think, Ryan? Would you, would you make this a franchise? Would you uh, say, okay, let's take a fresh stab at this? Uh, where, where do you stand on terms of prequel, sequel, or reboot? So I'm I'm more in for this one. I'm more in the reboot camp. Um, maybe not necessarily with this particular story. I would like to see a proper, more serious toned Dirk Pitt adaptation. Um, and again, I don't know if this one is necessarily the best to do it with. Uh, I'd, I'd have to go back and reread some of the books. And again, it has been like 20 years since I've read a Dirk Pitt novel. Um, but I, I, I really would like to see them. And, and unfortunately, the quote unquote, we're going to do a grittier reboot has become such a trope in today's day and age. Like, you know, they made Superman a gritty reboot. And it's like, well, Superman's not fucking gritty. It's not supposed to be. Um, and uh, it works in some cases. I think that this is one that it could work for. Um, my concern is that it, it would just be too easily confused with basically like James Bond, um, but with water. Because that's sort of, and I mean, even Bond was a member, if I remember, Bond was a member of Navy intelligence. Isn't that his backstory? Yeah, he's, yeah, he's former military. Well, and I know he's former military. I like. I think he was supposed to be because, like the the watch that James Bond usually wears is a a Submariner, and um, you know Dirk wears a scuba watch in this. Like, I think they're all supposed to come from naval intelligence sources. Mm. Um, so I I really would like to see 
a second pass at this with a, a little bit more of a consistent tone. I think you can bring some of the humor in my, my concern with rebooting any of this, trying to do it in a more serious way, but with a humorous bent is the propensity of Marvel humor anymore, where people are constantly making snarky remarks, even in places that it, it should not fit it. You know, they're, they're making just these quippy jokes during the middle of like what should be very intense, serious action scenes. And I feel like Marvel humor has so saturated movies right now that to try and do this film again in a way that is a more serious, but with a, you know, some levity in it, I think it would just fall into that camp and it would end up being wildly mediocre again. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure that I see franchising this like the idea of a sequel or a prequel. It's like, well, I'll just pick a different Clive Custler novel. So, you know, and, and go in that direction. I, I just, I want to see them try again. I, I think that there is something to be had in Clive Custler novels. Um, but I think they just, they, they need to go like the, the route of the born identity with it. They, it needs to be a more serious adaptation. Okay. Well, agree to disagree, sir, because I <laughs> enjoy the hell out of this movie. Okay. And I want to see more of these characters. I want to see okay. more of Sandecker and Steve Zahn's uh, Al and Matthew McConaughey's Dirk Pitt. Like they were just, they are so much fun to watch. The movie's absurd and you can't take <laughs> it, you can't take it with any hit of realism, uh, except maybe, you know, to call attention to, the uh issues in africa yeah um it's kind of meta that this movie in part deals with uh bribery and corruption in africa and to film it they had to participate in bribery and corruption corruption. (laughs) (laughs) that's that's getting that's method filming right there that that, that really is yeah they uh (laughs) they went hard in the paint on that one didn't they uh but i just i really enjoyed I just really enjoyed these characters and I enjoyed the um, absurdity Uh, parts that I didn't like was like the fact that they have Dirk being obsessed all his life with this idea of the ironclad. No, he wasn't right. Uh, I think in the book, he just like, he's aware of this myth and I think he just kind of comes across it. Yeah. Throughout the main plot in the book, which is the, the plague situation. Um, the, but the, it's fun. And I was like, you can use the backdrop of these novels and explore these other like lost things or whatever, not the Titanic. Cause we've done that, uh, <laughs> but just, uh, I think it would be, it'd be an enjoyable watch. And, uh, unfortunately too much time has passed, I think to get that, but that that's really what I would have loved to have seen. So I, I think a, a, a fair question that I'm now going to ask myself, and it, it will be essentially the, the, the running question of um, next season, which is, if this had not been part of an IP, would it feel more enjoyable, right? Like if this wasn't a Dirk Pitt story would I be more open to the idea of it franchising? And I think the honest answer is yes, because I do. I agree. I love the on-screen chemistry of these characters. I think that Matthew McConaughey and Steve Zahn as a, as a buddy duo of treasure hunters, that is a, that is a franchise we have been robbed of. 
Like I, I would have loved to have seen more of that. I, I, unfortunately, well, fortunately, unfortunately, I think that if this had become a franchise in that vein, it wasn't Dirk Pitt. It was just their, their treasure hunters. I think uncharted would have had a very difficult time distinguishing itself because everybody would have been like, well, it's just like those, you know, Matthew McConaughey movies with Steve Zahn where they're looking for treasure and, and they, they get into a bunch of japes. Have you seen Um, uncharted? Have you seen? I haven't. No. Okay, cool. Uh, Mark Wahlberg ruins franchises when he gets anywhere near them. Fair enough. I'm Sorry, very Mark. salty about Max Payne, which is a movie <laughs> that I think if it had not been Max Payne, I would be much more receptive to what they did in that movie. I actually think Max okay. Payne, the movie, if it were not Max Payne, is not a bad movie. I, I think it's a really interesting, like, you know, uh, mystical realism uh, kind of film that has like a, you know, a murder and drug case behind it. But the fact that it was Max Payne, I was like, this is not fucking Max Payne. And I am such a fan of Max Payne that I was really pissed about it. And I think that uh, Wahlberg does the same shit with Uncharted where I'm like, nah, I don't, I don't need to see him fuck this up. Well, you should watch Uncharted one day and determine, like, I want to know, do you like Uncharted or Sahara more? Oh, interesting. Um, Okay. Yeah. Because in terms of absurdity and like, uh, character relationships and stuff. Uh, I'm team Sahara the whole way. Okay. That's, that's fair. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's Sahara. Ladies and gentlemen, the 2005 Matthew McConaughey one, not the Jim Belushi one or the Brooke Shields one. Is that Um, who it was? Brooke Shields. Brooke Shields is, is another uh, movie poster one. (laughs) I I, I think cause they've all got like wildly mediocre ratings. And, um, I, I feel like, uh, the Brooke Shields one was like 4.9 or something like that. Maybe you like, should name things after a desert. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe that is the problem. Um, like, do you think, uh, I think it'd be hysterical if there was a, a Matthew McConaughey sequel called Gobi. <laughs> <laughs> or, uh, I don't know. Like, what's the one? In, I, I Now I'm like, what's the one in, in the American Southwest? What do, what do Death we Valley? <laughs> Death, I mean, so that actually sounds like a good movie. Is there, is, is there more of a name to the, why do I not know this? This know. is American geography. Is there a name to the desert in, in the United States? I don't know. Where's the Mojave desert. There we is go. That, I'll, I'll take that, Mojave. That, okay. I think that, yeah. I'll, I'll take Mojave. Yeah. All right. I think he does. I think Dirk Pitt does have an adventure that crosses through the Mojave at some point. Yeah, of course he does. Or the Rio Grande or something. I don't know. It is Brooke Shields in this other, and, and this, this, um, the, the Brooke Shields one, the movie poster looks straight out of 1969, but it's a 1983 movie. Yeah. The, the movie poster is a big, like throwback to yeah. like the golden age the, of cinema. Kind of right. I was going to say it does not align with, I, that's why I doubted you when you were like Brooke Shields. I was like, there's no fucking way this movie it, was made in 1943. Nope. It looks nine- like, <laughs> it looks like Lawrence of Arabia is supposed to be, uh, walking by at any moment. A hundred percent. Yes. Uh, so give it a watch, folks. Uh, let me let us know what you think of Sahara. Great movie. Way off base. A lot of if you're fun. Hustler fan. Let us know. Yeah. Just what don't take next? it too seriously. Yeah. What no. are we doing? All right. Next up, we are going to visit uh, animated films once again. Yeah. Our film this season is not a Disney film. Did you did you know there were other companies that made cartoon movies <laughs> besides Disney? Uh, they existed in they a pre did. in a pre DreamWorks time. 
uh, and we are going to take a look at Fox Studios Titan AE. Yeah, so tune in next week, folks. Looking forward to it. And uh, thanks for listening, as always. We'll see you next week, ladies and gentlemen. Bye.